Welcome to the podcast from Commonwealth Magazine. I'm Michael Jonas, here with my colleague Bruce Mole. We cover issues across the state, but there's no mistaking the importance of its capital city. If you wanted to have a conversation about all things Boston and you had to pick one person to have it with, there is little doubt about who that would be. And we are delighted to have him here with us on the podcast, Boston Mayor Marty Walsh. Mr. Mayor, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me today. Uh, so we're, we're delighted to have you in uh, uh, for our podcast. Uh, are, you a, are you a big podcast guy? Do you, do you listen to them? Have you no. appeared on co- podcasts I've, before? I've been on podcasts. I've been on, I was on with David Axelrod, which was uh, The Axe Files, which is pretty cool. Um, and uh, we had a lot of conversations, obviously, with David. He was asking, talking about national politics, and I was looking at him thinking, boy, I'd love to have a conversation with him about the early days of the White House and President Obama on the campaign trail and, and really what, what did he see in the president. We didn't get into much, too much of that, but we were talking about politics of the day, um, and it was, it was fun. It was fun, and I don't have the time necessarily to be listening to podcasts, but I know that uh, particularly for millennials, it, it is a way to get news out there and information out there. And, uh, you know, it's amazing how many times that uh, I was on a couple other podcasts, and it's amazing how many people actually listen and will we'll comment later on down the road. So it's a good way to get information out. So I was curious, uh, I don't know, a couple, three weeks ago, I was at a, an event you were at, uh, the Beach Ball, uh, which is a fundraiser. Oh, Jack Connor. Jack Connor's fundraiser. And the, I don't know if you recall, but the governor got up and gave a speech. And uh, at, at one point during the speech, he said, you know, lauded you and how you were a close friend and that you take a lot of, I forget the word he used, guff yeah, or criticism for being a friend or supporter of his. Uh, and I wonder, I, I was sort of curious, I didn't see you after the event, but I, I was sort of curious what you took away from that. Well, you know, as a lifelong Democrat and a proud Democrat and always supporting candidates, the Democratic candidates and um, always being around Democrats, people didn't see my public interaction with Republicans, if you will. Uh, in the House of Representatives, I had a great relationship with the Republicans in, in the in the House. We didn't agree on a lot of things, and we didn't we didn't disagree on everything, which was great. And we're able to work things out um, a lot of different issues, whether it was labor issues or workers' rights issues. Um, you know, I had a great. I could go over and talk to the Republicans. And uh, as a mayor, you're in the spotlight, and. Um, you know, you're at events with with other elected officials like governors and and, and attorney generals and so forth, and, and you know Charlie Baker and myself. Um, I don't want to say it's an unlikely relationship, but it's one of those that I didn't realize when he got elected governor because I support him, Martha Coakley, uh, that that we would we would um, have so much in common and actually work so closely together and so well together on, on advancing Boston and Massachusetts and really having that relationship. So I think I think that his 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 he's in he's in campaign mode, so he has an election and, and you know I think um, his opponents. Uh, kind of took, I think, shot at him at the Republican convention for having a, a friendship with me, which I thought was kind of funny. I found out afterwards, and, and I think that you know you, you have the you have the political side of it and you have the personal side of it, and I think that um, for us, it's you know I can see myself, Charlie Baker, myself, when we're both out of public office, still talking and being friends. And why you? Talk a little bit about you said it an unlike might be called an unlikely friendship because I mean the politics is so divisive today. It's Democrats, Republicans, there's no line between them. And, and I think that 
uh, I think in certain issues that might be the case in certain areas, but I think uh, Massachusetts has always had a history of having uh, a presence of the Republican Party, whether it's a governor's office or what have you. And, um, you know, it, it's it's always it's, it's kind of moved along that way. So, for example, people that are die-high Democrats, they see me as a Democrat and I support Democratic candidates and I will support whatever I have to do. And then the fact that, you know, we're, he's a Republican governor, I'm a Democratic mayor, and we're friendly and it's an election season for him. And we're in the middle of election season for him. And, you know, people are kind of like, you know, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Uh, in the race. And, and, you know, I made it clear that I, I will support the Democratic nominee uh, at, after the primary is over. Um, and do you feel like you have to do that? Or, I mean, I, I mean it seems it, like you know this governor pretty well. Do I you? do. I mean, and Sean Big has done a, a nice job as governor. I mean, he's done a good job in some areas, really good job as governor. And, and I think moving forward, uh, but you know, at the end of the day, it, you know, I, I think that the values of the party are important to me. Um, I, I think that there's times that the party has to. Um, move and, and, and compromise, and I think all parties need to move and compromise. Um, yesterday in the legislature, they took up uh, three compromise positions on ballot initiatives, um, on the minimum wage, on the family leave, and on the sales tax repeal. And you know, I guess you could argue that you know the position that was for, for, for all three of those, you know, the minimum wage increase is a Democratic issue, not a Republican issue. Uh, the fa- pay family leave is a Democratic issue, not a Republican issue. And the repeal of the sales tax is a Republican issue, not a Democratic issue. And yesterday, you know, the House was able to, and the Senate were able to come to a compromise on it. So I think the parties have to un- understand the importance of compromise. Um, that's what's lacking in national politics. I think in a lot of ways, um, you know. Since Obama's second year of, or the, the third year of his second, first term, uh, when when the Republicans took over the House of of uh, House and Congress, um, and even before that, there wasn't a lot of stuff getting done, um, and you know it's it's just it's sad, it's a sad state of affairs, and it comes down to people with Democrats and Republicans next to them, and I think the parties need to understand that there has to be compromise. But I, I take the the point that you'll certainly support the nominee, but I wonder whether I mean given your you know, good working relationship with the governor, uh, you know, is your posture toward the campaign going to be a little different than others? We had the former party chair, John Walsh, in to do a podcast, and he wrote a piece for us saying Charlie Baker's beatable, and he, but he dialed it up. I mean, he didn't hold back in, in going after uh, I think everyone's, Governor Baker. I think everyone's beatable in the election. You yeah. just don't know what's going to happen, particularly yeah. in today's world. Uh, you know, you can't take it for granted. I didn't take Tito Jackson for granted. Um, when when I Even though I felt comfortable about the race, but I'm like, okay, we, you know, I was working hard every day because you just don't know what's going to happen in politics um, and with the electorate. Um, but, you know, I think a- anyone can be beatable. Um, I think the Democrat, whoever the Democrat nominee is, ha- has a has a big challenge ahead of them um, to to win that seat. People uh, would even say it's a long shot at this point. Yeah. Which, it, it, which but, again, people out, outside but, of Massachusetts think that's crazy. They're like, how does it, how is it that a Democrat looks like they're a long shot to win the governor's the election, seat here? The election's still a long time away. Yeah. And the fact that, I think the fact that, um, and it, I think John references in his article, the fact that Elizabeth Warren has an opponent uh, could be a game changer a bit. Right, right. I mean, that that's something that if, if I'm, if I'm, if I am, um, the governor, or if I'm, you know, running somebody in there, somebody from the other party who's so popular around the world, in the country, in your district, and you get concerned that that person's on the ballot, is, is there coattails that can pull somebody over? You just don't know, right? But as you support him, I mean, you're are you gonna you're not gonna be out there bashing uh, Governor Baker in the in the sort gonna, of way no, that I'm not you might ba- hear I'm not some Democrats or John Walsh. Talking. I won't be bashing the governor, yeah. um, but I, I will be talking about what what I think that the party needs to do as far as what we need to do as a Commonwealth even better.
Yeah. And just sort of sticking a little bit, we want to get to some Boston sort of nitty-gritty issues, but on, on the political uh, front, um, there's been been attention paid to, you know, your involvement, uh, not not in the governor's race per se, but uh, you've stepped out and endorsed Josh Zakem in the race for secretary of state uh, up on the North Shore. You're, you're strongly behind your former chief of staff, Dan Coe. Uh, who's in that wild scramble for a congressional seat up yeah. there with like I don't just know, just like the mayor's race, fifty candidates just up like there. The or something race. Like that. That's I think true. There's eleven in that one. There's twelve right. in ours. And, exactly. You know, and, and it's hard to find an opening in, in the race like that. And um, you know, but I am involved. Sorry. Sorry yeah. Man. No, that's all right. But uh, so Peter Lucas, uh, longtime uh, uh, political hand around, and media media guy around the state, uh, had a piece uh, in the Lowell Sun. Spent some time with you, I guess, out out at an event uh, yeah, for Dan Coe and Hudson. And he referred to you, W, the mayor of Massachusetts, <laughs> yeah. said that you're sort of taking this. Uh, I don't know how my state. colleagues feel about that. <laughs> yeah. he First of all, I thought one thing was funny. He said, you are the first Boston mayor to have visited Hudson in recorded history. That's crazy. I don't know. Maybe before, in prehistoric times, maybe there was a Boston mayor that had <laughs> oh, been there. Oh, my God. But, I'm uh, showing if some mayor went to Hudson. Yeah. But then he also went on to say, you know, sort of leading up to that it's a matter of when, not if, you run for either governor or yeah. U.S. Senate. Does he know something that no, uh, none he, of us are in on? I mean, I think there's a lot of assumptions. I, I have honestly have no idea what's next for me. Um, yeah. my, my job in front of me is being mayor. We have, you know, every day you have a big decision, big challenges ahead of us. Um, you know, we just had the conference of mayors in Boston, and, and they were all raving about our city and about how great we are and great things are going on. And, and, and you know, I want to continue what's happening in the city and try and improve. There's a lot of places I have to improve. Um, we just have to improve in our educational system. We have to improve in more affordable housing. Um, you know, we did the Airbnb thing, which we'll probably talk about later. But um, that's going to put some more housing on the market. But we still have, you know, we have a lot of work to do um, in, in those two areas. Um, you know, equality, income inequality. We were ranked number one. We're number seven now. we got to do better there and go da- go further down that road. Uh, so my, my, my focus isn't on being what my next role is if it's in the public sector, private sector. When I was a state rep, there was no secret I wanted to be mayor of Boston. Right. Um, and, you know, I was one of probably hundreds of people that wanted to be mayor of Boston <laughs> at that point. Um, and after I got elected mayor, honestly, I don't think what the next step is. Like, I don't have a grand, grand scheme of things to run for run for governor or run for United States Senate today. I mean, who knows if that'll change as time goes on. Uh, but I don't have that. I mean, some, some days, you know, I work hard. I, I go at this job all the time. Uh, you know, I leave early in the morning. I come home late at night. My neighbors will vouch for me that they never see me except in the weekends once in a while. Um, who knows what's next? I mean, I, I don't I don't want to be that person setting the table for the next run right, right. now. I just, it just, it, there's too much work to do in Boston. Boston is, um, you know, it's an important city for New England. It's an important city for the Northeast. And I want to make sure that I'm doing everything I can to be the best mayor I can be. Yeah, and and I know it was sort of an exciting uh, moment to have the, the the mayor's conference here. I mean, to sort of have you know play host and and sort of be able to show your city to to other mayors yeah. across the country. And I guess one thing I'm struck by, I mean, as you said, Boston has got a lot going for it, and absolutely, uh, you know, when you compare it to some some cities across the country that have been struggling, we've been on this on this uh, tear really. And but it's it sort of. Uh, you know the Airbnb and the housing thing. A lot of the some of the problems that we have seem to be a little bit related to the su- the successes that we're having as well. And I'm thinking uh, housing is one thing. Another another big area is transportation. Yes. I mean we're we're sort of a victim of our own success. People keep saying there's just more and more people coming into the city, and that we're sort of 
gridlocked when it comes to well, transportation. It's, it's funny. The, 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 one of the papers in Boston did a story on transportation when the U.S. Conference of Mayors was here, and they were talking about the tra- we're the worst city in America transportation-wise. And some of the folks from L.A. started laughing. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, really? Come on to us. And, and I think, you know, we look inward a lot. But but that doesn't mean that we don't tackle these issues. Transportation is a big issue. Um, you know, uh, I, I don't think we can use the excuse of, you know, old streets, cow pasture streets. We can't use that anymore. Right. Uh, I think the, the issue is we're growing at an incredible fast pace. Uh, you know, we, we've since I've been mayor, we've added 100,000 new jobs to Boston. We've grown population-wise, I don't know, 40,000 people or so. Um, so we're growing as a city. Uh, the transportation needs are still great. Um, people are driving more still, even though we thought people take public transportation. And I, I think, honestly, what has to happen here is – is the fact that we need a, we need to continue a plan on the MBTA and public transportation and maybe water shuttles as well. I'm not sure how how willing people in Boston are willing to take a water shuttle around the city right now. I hope it will happen eventually, but we're not like other cities. We're very stuck in our ways, and mm-hmm. you know we're not as we don't have as many walkers as New York does. I mean, when I go to New York um, and and I go for a weekend, I walk. You know, right. uh, when I go to Boston, we drive, and it's kind of like we have a different mentality, and it is about changing the mindset. And I think with the new people coming into Boston, that that is changing. Um, you right, know, it's going to change as time goes on. A lot of uh, interest in you know bicycle. Uh, yeah, we did the blue bikes right. the other day. Uh, you know, we have um, you know Matt O'Malley called me the other day. Sat, I actually had lunch with him, and he was talking about getting docking stations in West Roxbury and Rosendale and more places, and and really thinking of how do we continue to expand those programs. Not just putting bikes on the street, but how do we make sure that our, our bikes, bicyclists are safe? And, we, you know, we're starting to connect bike tracks. You know, when, when Mayor Menino decided to, 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 you know, pursue the biking in Boston, um, they painted the streets. And it was a brilliant move at the time because there was no designated areas for bikes. And they had a line down the street. So that was great then. Now people want cycle tracks. They want they want dedicated bike lanes. So it's completely different uh, operation for what we're doing, and we're slowly but surely looking at it. We're, we're piloting. We piloted a program in Rosendale on Washington Street to do um, rapid bus transit, and we did it for a weekend. We took away parking, which I thought would be a disaster, and it worked okay for three days. And then we did it for a month, and I thought people <laughs> would be up in arms over it because if I tried to do it on George Avenue, I'd probably you know people would add it to resign. Um, <laughs> and it worked, and now it's a full time. It's not a pilot anymore it's a program so I, I think what we have to ask people to be willing to be patient and willing to try something new um, it might work and it might not work and if it works it's a bonus and if it doesn't work we'll go back to the revert to the way it was right but, but I think that we, we have to start thinking here how do we think differently outside the box um, you know um, those are the things I'm not afraid to try something and use it as a pilot and if it works it works if it doesn't it doesn't you know but we immediately go right to you know, high pressure at the moment. We, we announce something, it's like, okay, we have the, the negative stories on it and the positive stories on it, and people are fighting it, and people are saying, okay, let's try it. We need to do more of the try. And gondolas, are, are they part of the try? We're going we're gonna to study it. Um, you know, that was an idea that came to us through uh, a proposal on the waterfront. Um, I have a lot of questions on, on the gondola idea. Um, first of all, will people take it? Uh, two, who's going to pay to maintain it? Three, who's going to run it? for who's going to build it. Um, 
but so what we did do, we we do we're doing a transportation study on the waterfront, and we incorporated it into the idea of of the waterfront. Uh, I was in Seattle about three years ago, and, and um, they have like a, a monorail type of system that they built in Seattle. It was like an alternative to public transportation. Not many people take it. So it's not as successful, I don't think, as, as they originally thought it was. Um, so I'm not sure if the monorail will be as successful. But we'll look at it on a study. Um, I'm not really sure. I think we're going to have to have a, a major buy-in by developers if they want to do it. Um, but I'm not sure. We'll, we'll see what happens. And do you um, – I know you've – in the Seaport District, uh, Summer Street and, and just the general congestion there that – your administration is looking as as well as the T to, to sort of address issues there, but it seems like it's a it's a problem that continues obviously to grow as more and more buildings go up. Yeah. Um, is, are we getting beyond the study point? Do we need to start oh, doing some? Oh yeah, no, we, there's no question about it, and, and I think that. You know, this isn't a criticism of, of past elected officials. Okay, it, it's going to sound like it is, but it's not. Um, when the when the waterfront was being designed and planned out. There should have been a more aggressive transportation plan and design for that, for the anticipation of it to be successful. Now, I don't know if anyone anticipated to be as successful as it is, but the silver line's down there and the capacity is not there to, to, to service all the people down there. The private developers have to, private, con, private industry down there has to rent vans and they take people around the waterfront. You got you have to, if you're going to have an opportunity that, like that, which, which will probably be the last opportunity like that in Boston where we have that much land, we should have really had a really strong infrastructure for transportation down there, and it really wasn't put in place. Uh, and and the, it, whether it was the state and the city, uh, there wasn't a strong enough infrastructure. And, and now what we're doing is playing catch up. And I think that we have we have one chance of figuring out what is that transportation infrastructure, and we have to add it to what's happening down the waterfront. And I think that um, you know that's why we have to look at seeing some of the opportunities like rapid bus transit. Is that going to work on some of the street? Um, the Silver Line is that the right opportunity? There is some track down there. Do we put some do we put some uh, tro- trolleys down there because it's it's above ground? Uh, it should have been planned out better when it was laid out, and, and you know. In some ways, is a missed opportunity, I think. Uh, but we have to fix that opportunity now because it's only going to grow. Uh, Brian Golden made a comment the other day that the waterfront, South Boston waterfront is only 60 per- 40% built out. Hmm. Think about that for a minute, 40%. Yeah. And, and you already look at it and say, oh, my God, it's so pa- busy and packed down there. Uh, we really have to think about as, as, we, as we finish the next 60%, uh, I think the two biggest issues that we have to figure out down there uh, are open space and in, in transportation. And, uh, I mean, so this question that I, I think you raised that, that there's a sense looking back that the seaport planning, what maybe wasn't done optimally, and, and, and everybody sort of looks at it and sees all these glassy box towers there, and, and, and they say, how did that happen in this time when, when there's a lot more consideration and thought given to planning and design issues? And um, I guess one thing I'm wondering is that question uh, or sort of a related form of that question, people are now asking about the waterfront area more in the downtown area. And in particular, there's this uh, little skirmish developing around the the, the building that uh, Don Shafaro wants mm-hmm. to build. And um, Conservation Law Foundation that's been very outspoken on it is now saying that they're prepared to even file suit to block it and saying, you know, that we had this state law governing waterfront development. Uh, heights along 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 the waterfront, and that this plan just kind of blows through that by you know two or three times the height that that the that the law had established, and and uh, you know and they're saying that you know we're, we're there. I think that what they're getting at is that there's a concern that this development pressure with the economy booming 
you know, if we're not careful, we could see some of the mistakes that everybody now sees in the seaport creeping into this downtown area. And we may have this huge tower, and then suddenly we're going to say, oh, my God, we've kind of walled off the waterfront in well, some way. I think that, you know, I can't speak to what the work of the Conservation Law Foundation did in Boston when Rose Wharf was built and all the buildings along the wa- waterfront. Um, but back then, the waterfront, the accessibility of the waterfront was not there. Now, now in fairness, the Central Artery Tunnel wasn't there, and we had the highway there, so right. it wasn't as much land to move things back. But, um, you know, so that wasn't there at that time. Um, and I think that, you know, the conversation, I'm not, I'm not sure what the Conservation Law Foundation, who they're suing, cause, because I read one article that they're suing the city of Boston, and I read another article they're suing the plan. So I don't <laughs> know if they're suing the state. Uh, they're suing Shafaro, and Shafaro's had many meetings with different people. Uh, where, and he said he's going to meet with them next week, even though yeah, they're about to sue the, over the this, building, I guess. The building was higher and taller, and it's not as tall now. Yeah. It is in the waterfront, but there's, he, his building actually opens up uh, the proposed building yeah. that's not proposed yet. Actually, the, the, the footprint of the of the garage that is 100% footprint now goes to, I think, 60 or 50% footprint, which actually opens up corridors to the waterfront mm-hmm. that aren't there today, which eliminates that walling off of the waterfront. So there's a lot of questions on, 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 on what, the, what, the, what, the, what the lawsuit does. But to bring it back, so when you th- talk about, the, when you talk about the, 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 the seaport, not to insult people that are listening that build buildings down there because there's some nice buildings down there. We, we've asked for different looks of the designs. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we did when I first became the mayor, Pier 4, changed the design. It was basically a straight rectangular box running along the pier of Pier 4. Um, they've changed the curving of it. They've changed the way that the, the outdoor of it looks a little bit to, to make it more cause more appealing to from, from um, optics looking in on it. Um, Skanska built a building down there. It's an oval building. It's not a square block building. It's an oval building. And, and that building's moving forward now. They're, they're building that. Uh, WS Development got approval to build 1.1 million square feet of, of new building. That's where Amazon's going to go. Um, the Amazon that's approved, not not the <laughs> H2Q. Wait, is this H2Q. news here? Do we, <laughs> no. you have early word we're getting? And, like, and that, building, that building's different. And, and we're looking at open space more. And we're trying to create more. You know, Martin's Park, Martin Richards Park, uh, that's going down there. That's on the waterfront. That's actually open space, but it's all also going to deal with climate resiliency. So we're trying to think about how do you change some of these buildings and how do you move some of these buildings around. I think that people are getting more creative in designing the buildings rather than having a block, a circle, or, or a box. They, they want more better buildings. There's not much land left on the waterfront um, that, that can be developed. Um, you know, the down by the Marine Industrial Park, uh, you have some land down there. So that's an opportunity for us to make sure we keep accessibility to the waterfront. Um, Commonwealth Pier doesn't allow us to access, so they have to man-make the access. Uh, Whiskey Priest and uh, the other bar that's on there, the 121 Seaport, um, there's no access there right now with those two bars there, but the new building that's going to be built there has accessibility in the backside. Uh, the ICA has accessibility, obviously, in the back with the stairs. Um, you know, behind Fallon's project, there is accessibility behind there. Um, so we probably, again, it goes back to planning. I think if, if we could have thought it through longer um, and saw have seen what they've done in Brooklyn uh, with Industry City, mm-hmm. uh, really changing, you know, in Brooklyn on the park, the parks are on the water. Um, those those piers are all in the water. It's, it's, it prepares for climate resiliency. The buildings are built back again. Again, I think there's another opportunity. I don't think anyone ever imagined that the waterfront 
is would in the whole world, by the way, Ireland's doing the same thing. In Galway City, they're they're working a master plan now to to build the docks down Ireland for for housing and retail and industry. Uh, they're doing it all across America, all up and down the East Coast. So I don't know if anyone expected this boom to happen 25 years ago. Hmm. But you have, uh, I mean, even though you're talking about the need for more planning, you've been a little uh, less than thrilled with sort of CLF's voice in this. I know you fired off a letter at one point to the board and one, just wondering whether they're, are they sort of being a productive part of the conversation or are they kind of tripping things up that are, you I, know, are already 90, in 90, 90% of the way down the, we down absolutely, the field? We absolutely had a, had a, had a, a head collision or, or, or a difference of opinions back when uh, 121 Seaport. And mm-hmm. I, didn't, I didn't appreciate the way that um, they operated by not reaching out to me and that they w- criticized us of not reaching out to them. And, and we had conversations since then. So we've had dialogue. And, mm-hmm. and you know, I, I don't take this latest suit threat as, as a personal thing. Um, there's been dialogue, and there'll be dialogue again. They said that they want to work with us as partners, but they also said, and they're very clear, and this goes back to the days of the foundation, that their job is not to make me happy. Their job is not to not to just approve rubber stamp things, and when they feel something's not right, they're going to stand up, and, and I appreciate that. Um, that's their role, and that's what their, their function is, and, and I appreciate the fact that this that that's their function, um, because if, if we don't have somebody rub, if we don't have somebody uh, standing up sometimes, then what's going to happen is the people are going to lose out, and there's going to be a bad product or a lack of access to the waterfront or a whole bunch of problems, and, and I think that, you know, I know I'm saying this, and people are going to listen to my office. And go, what are you talking about? Of course, you want them to support, to be supportive. No, I do, but I think that we can learn from them as well. So I was curious. Uh, we just uh, the Supreme Judicial Court just knocked this millionaire uh, tax off the yeah. ballot, and that was going to provide money for transportation and education. So a lot of people are thinking, well, what are we going to do now? Yeah. Well, and, and let's keep it on a sort of specific thing: transportation. Um, do you think the T needs more money, A, and B, there's been a lot of talk about regional uh, regional efforts to impose, to raise money. Like, this is primarily talked about sort of outside Boston, but I'm, I'm just sort of curious whether you think there's a role for regionally for communities to do more. The T absolutely needs money um, because you're talking about infrastructure improvements that need to happen up and down the line. Um, so when you talk to Charlie Baker about that, he sort of acts like we're doing it. We're, we're, no, we're they're making it. investments and they're bonding and they're doing things. But but I think that, you know, in 2013, one of my last votes as a rep was to raise the gas tax and index it. And um, and then the voters will repeal that a year later. And I think that that, that vote, uh, you know, a dedicated tax to a certain area it helps because you have reoccurring revenue coming in every year. And it's kind of a usage tax that if you drive, you know, 75,000 miles a year, you pay on that. If you drive 3,000 miles a year, you pay on that. And, right. and you find alternative modes of transportation if the gas is too high. Um, so I, I think that, you know, I, the, you'd have to ask the governor about his feeling on about revenue, but I, I'll tell you right he, now. He was on the other side of, of you on that gas yeah, he was. And, 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 you go and, in and say, come on, Charlie, like, what are you thinking? Well, he was running for governor at the time. <laughs> yeah. He wasn't listening to anything I said. <laughs> oh, I guess that's true. <laughs> um, so I, I, think, I think that, you know, uh, some some form of revenue has to happen. And does it have to come because he doesn't seem supportive of raising new yeah. revenue? Well, I tell you that the hard part we're putting on cities and towns is that they don't have the money. 
um, you know, I, I speak for Boston. You know, we're going through incredible growth in five years. We have AAA bond rating five consecutive years, first time ever. We've ended the year with a little bit of a surplus every single year. Our rainy day fund has almost doubled in five years. We run a very fiscally tight ship. But if a downturn in the economy comes, that can change the way we fund things. It can change the way that our local aid, uh, not the local aid from the state house, but they can fund, change the way that our parks and recs operate, our public works operate, operates, uh, all, all of the things we do. So, so you have to find revenue for what you want to do moving forward. Part of it is the lack of partnership by the federal government. Um, this administration said uh, when, when he was running for President Trump, that he would have the largest infrastructure bill in the history of the country. Um, so people got excited about it because it's not just Boston. It's, 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 it's our interstates. It's, it's all of our roadways. It's all of our rapid transits, all of our trains. Um, and and when, when he announced his big plan, um, everyone in the beginning, the word was that it was going to be 80% federal government, 20% state and city. Uh, and then when it came out, I believe it was 80% state and city, 20% federal. So for all intents and purposes, you're passing it on to the locals. Right. They don't have the money for that. We, we have money in Boston, but we pay, I think, almost $90 million a year uh, as a subsidy to the MBTA. What about um, the ride-hailing apps, Uber and Lyft? They are adding congestion to the streets yeah. here in Boston, but they're not hit up for, for money for using those Not streets. as much as they should be. Do you think they should be Absolutely. assessed more? There's no question about it. And, and, and when, when they did the bill at the State House, I mean, I wanted more control. We have zero control uh, as far as a, as a municipality to be able to regulate those two industries. And, and I think the money the money that we're getting, we're getting, I think, 10, 10 cents on a ride for a five-year period. And I think there's a, a lot of revenue in that particular area. Um, you know, s- s- they both do surge pricing. Um, they both, they both, it's a brilliant business model. It's not going away. Uh, it's putting the cab industry out of business, which ultimately cities and towns, Boston will be one of those cities that will have to figure out how to, how to try and build the cab industry because they have these medallions and they're out there, they're costing all kinds of money and, and the, 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 we, we regulate them. So I think there's a, an ability with Ly- Uber and Lyft. I think there's an ability with Airbnb, uh, with some more additional revenue coming in that we weren't, we weren't collecting. And also today, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that it was okay for um, states to start taxing um, um, some of these companies that pack delivery companies like I believe Amazon some of those companies the Supreme, I read something today so that's another big lift the retailers that in Massachusetts that are being drowned out because people are ordering on their telephone um, they now can, will be able to tax them so that's another shot of revenue so there's revenue out there there is but it doesn't seem like there's much of a on when you talk about revenue Partly because of Charlie Baker, there's not a whole lot of talk about it. Are, no, but it's going to have to come down to the legislature to do something. You know, I, I was in the House when, when um, 2002, when the economy went down. You covered it, um, and if you remember, then Speaker of the House Tommy Ferner at the time went on a tour of all the all the uh, op-ed boards around the Commonwealth, and he went out talking about the need for additional revenue. I do remember, and, and we, we and you re- voted it through over the then Governor Jane Swift's yeah, veto. Right? And we raised one point. I think it was 1.1 billion dollars in taxes. And nobody hardly pushed back on us. And what, what we did in that case, we dedicated revenue to certain areas of the budget. And we also put in de- uh, not indexing, we, we put timelines on when things were going to revert. We, we, we froze the income tax repeal at that point. And then once at a certain benchmarks, we opened it up again. And, and nobody pushed back. And you ha- I think we, what voters want is you have to go and explain what you're doing and what the need for it and the intent of it is. I think if pe- people see, like, for example, the, um, the Community Preservation Act in Boston, in 2001, the city went for it. It got got killed. It's 70% against it, 30% for it. Um, in 2015, we went for it, 
and we got 70% for it and 30% against it. I went out and I talked to the business community. I asked them not to oppose it. I told them this is where it's going. It's important that we have this money. And we went out to the community and we were talking about it. And 70% of the Boston residents voted to ultimately raise their, their, their taxes by 1%. And the money was directed towards historic preservation, open space, and housing. And I think if you explain it to people, the majority of the people understand it. I think people feel that, their ta- and if you use their tax money wisely, they'll be happy. What they don't want to hear is a story of, of, of waste and what's happening. And that's why, as the mayor, I try to run a very fiscally strong city because I don't want people to say, you're raising the fees on parking and you're doing this and doing that and you're not spending the money wisely. Hmm. Uh, well, I wanted, we've talked a lot about uh, development and, and a lot of issues facing the city sort of in the, in the central I wanted to ask just quickly a little bit, uh, as we're running out of time, about uh, about schools and an issue that's obviously of big concern to folks across all the city's neighborhoods. And there was a, a, a report recently that looked at high schools in Boston, and it came to a pretty sobering conclusion that that although you know there have been a lot of gains, the graduation rate is up, uh, but but when it comes to a population that that they kind of deemed off track kids. That, that, that we've been kind of stuck over the last decade or so and we haven't been able to really move the needle. Uh, you know, and this is a problem that's really concentrated in the, in the so-called open enrollment high schools. You know, we've got exam schools that are, that are doing really well, some pilot schools, yeah. places like Boston Arts Academy. But then these kind of, the, the kind of mainstay neighborhood-based open enrollment high schools are really struggling. And, and, I mean, this is a challenge that's sort of bedeviled mayors for a while. The schools have long been kind of this Achilles heel while the city's booming. There's still always this issue about whether people feel like the schools, you know, are, are on track. And so, I mean, what do you do about these, that, that population and these high schools? They're serving, you know, hugely, you know, a lot of kids coming up in, from poverty. They yep. have a higher group, a uh, higher proportion of, uh, of uh English language learners. I mean, they kind of are saddled with a lot of the most challenging yeah. kids, and it's hard no, to get I think, progress. I think there are a lot of challenges. I think that's probably been f- maybe 40, 50 years of high school problems in, in, in America, but for Boston. Um, I think there's a lot more competition now for our kids. Um, when they graduate eighth grade, there's a lot more competition in our private schools to diversify our private schools. We have charter schools that are performing at high levels. There's a lot more challenges and more, more competition there. Um, high schools have become colleges for all intents and purposes to, to really go out and recruit kids and try and get kids to, to take the classes. Uh, I think the open enrollment, I know the open enrollment schools, we have to do some major changes. Most of our open enrollment schools, um, you know, they're not performing anywhere near where they need to be. There are certain aspects of those schools that are performing at high levels, but not the entire school community. And I think that, that we, we've put a lot of focus, emphasis on um, grammar schools, um, adding kindergarten seats. We're going to add some more in this year's budget, um, focusing on, you know, K, K through 7, K through 8 education. Um, we have to do a better job. There's no excuse. I, I can't talk to you guys and make it sound like the, the picture's rosy here. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to make take a real solid look at what we're doing and change the way that we do our business in our high schools. I think that colleges are successful because they change with the times. They're, they're changing the way they educate kids. They're changing the way that they have a classroom experience. And we still have the same old, same old with the, four, the 25 seats or 30 seats in the classroom with the with with the rows and, and do the same thing. Uh, we have to think outside the box when it comes and, to high schools. And do you have any sense of what, you know, not doing the same thing, what any of the keys would be to get the high think, schools really to I think get one of some the things, movement? I think we have to start taking these – first of all, the, these schools that were – 
that were local high schools um, years ago were broken into smaller academies. And for a while that was successful. And for, I'll give you an example, South Boston High School. South Boston High School was South Boston High School. Then the city of Boston broke it into three separate academies. Right. And um, one of them was failing, one was doing okay, and one was exceeding at high levels, Excel. And what did they do a few years later? They took all three high schools, they merged them back into one super high school again. And, and that, that system's not working. And the reason why some of these schools that the kids are choosing uh, – the exam schools and the other schools that they're choosing is because they have a focus. And I think we have to look at our 18 high schools in Boston and really make sure there's a focus around them. I hear the stories from the generation right before me. You know, I went to, I went to Burke and the Burke had an electrical program and I went to the, 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 you know, Charleston high and they had a woodworking program and, and they had other programs. We need to start focusing our schools. I think very, very intentionally on what are some of the options that young people want to experience and, and get prepare them for college or a career. And we're not doing that. And I think that, you know, having a 76% graduation rate is, is we can celebrate it. That means 24% of the kids aren't graduating. That's a too big of a number. And so I, I really think as, as we look at this report and we start to, we start to figure out what the, what the, what the solutions are in this report, one of them will, will have to be fo- having these, these, these schools w- with a focus on a particular uh, curriculum or, 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 or something. Um, that's why charter schools are support. I mean, charter schools have, you know, music is in one school. Life science is another school. College preparation is another school. They, they all have a focus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, they have an, and, and parents choose it for that reason. And I think we have to start thinking in our schools, not just have general academics in our schools. Everyone learns the general academic piece. But why does somebody want to – why we have to give a reason for some parents or some child to choose Charleston High, choose South Boston High School, choose the Burke choose these other schools. All right. Great. Well, um, well this has been a great conversation. I uh, really appreciate you no, coming fine. in. Have to do it Thanks again. for being here. We, we'd love to have you back again. So uh, it's the beginning of summer now officially. You got got any good summer plans? No, it's just, um, you know, um, we have a lot of stuff. The schedule, the schedule is not closed, quiet down at all. Um, you know, I just want to make sure we have a safe summer for the kids and the people in our city. And also we have, uh, we're putting a lot of young people to work summer jobs. So if anyone's listening, uh, and you want to do something for the city and you say, I really want, I'm motivated, uh, contact us, contact us at city hall. We'd love for you to hire uh, a young person. Uh, we have an abundance of young people looking for summer employment and, you know, the old fashioned job of cleaning the park and cleaning the beach and cleaning this, that's still there. But I think if we can give, uh, a junior or senior in high school, an opportunity to work in an office and get a feel for an office that helps them, uh, you know, making some decisions in life as far as what they might want to do. So if anyone's listening on that, I'd love to have your support. Okay, great. And and we would love to have you come back again, but thank you so much, Mayor Walsh, for being in here today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, this has been another episode of the podcast from Commonwealth Magazine. I'm Michael Jonas for my colleague, Bruce Mole. Thanks for listening. Subscribe on SoundCloud or iTunes. We'll see you again next time. <laughs>